Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny's guest is sought-after speaking and leadership coach, Alexia Vernon. The two of them will be discussing about her latest book, Step Into Your Moxie, which is all about learning how to speak up for yourself and the ideas and issues that matter most to you, like your career, business, community, or even your home. So you'll definitely want to tune in. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle and happy Friday. I'm your host, attorney turned life coach, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing coaches, teachers, authors, and healers who are on a mission to encourage you, to inspire you, and to give you tools to live a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives at 1150kknw.com. Um, and I also invite you to connect with me on Facebook. Um, I've been doing this 30-day Facebook Live challenge. Uh, I challenged myself to do it uh, just so that I would get more comfortable on uh, social media platforms because I resisted it for a really long time, especially after my divorce. Um, but now I am back and I'm experimenting with using it. And it's been really fun, actually. So um, I invite you to connect with me there. Of course, I'm there by my name, Sunny Joy McMillan. Um, And I also do have a page for the show, which is Sunny in Seattle Radio. And each week I post information about our upcoming guests so that you can keep up and make sure that you tune in um, if you know who's going to be on the show. Um, So my website for my business, if you want to connect with me for coaching and all that good stuff, is goldenoversoul.com. That's goldenoversoul.com. And I do have an event I want to mention to you all before we jump in with our awesome guest today. Um, But first, I feel like I I haven't seen you in a long time, Vinny. It's only been like... Has it been a week or was I here last week? uh, I can't even remember. I'm not really keeping track. I I see your face so much. (laughs) Because of Facebook Live. Freaking Facebook Live challenge. Not to be mean, I I really haven't missed you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be honest, you're there every day. Okay, awesome. So I've got plenty of sunshine okay. in my life. Well, I haven't had, I can feel like I haven't had any Benny in my life. Bring me, is anything exciting uh, happening? No, not really. I've, everything's fine. Okay. Thank you for asking. Okay, very good. <laughs> I was going to extend my Facebook Live challenge. Me, and now, me, me, Yeah, I was me, about to say, me. maybe I don't need to be doing that. Maybe there's too much sunny joy on Facebook right no, now. No, keep it going. We discussed this. You've okay. got to keep that momentum going. Well, that's the idea. Yep, okay. yep. There you go. Oh, okay. look, as a matter of fact, there you are right now. Oh, I just popped my up. Yeah, well, I'll be doing one after the this show. This was day today. 23, I believe that was yesterday. Yes, yes. Well, I'm coming up. I can't believe it's been almost 30 days. So, anyway, speaking of keeping them, you momentum, have great hair in all your photos, too, by the oh, way. Oh, well, thank you, Benny. I'll have to compliment Your stylist is amazing. Lauren at Lisa Power Salon in Queen Anne. Boom. She's awesome. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Keep it going. Well, thanks. You're I welcome. appreciate that. <laughs> uh, so, keeping the momentum going, um, I actually wanted to let you guys know about a live event. Um, so Sarah Landon is one of, well, she is the most frequent return guest I've had on the show. Um, she is just one of my favorite spiritual teachers. She's a friend, she's a colleague, and uh, she channels for a group called The Council. And um, just total honesty, the teachings that she has brought forth, um, you know, I love I love Abraham Hicks. I love Cryon. I'm not um, in the closet at all about my love for 
uh, channeling and some of the wisdom that comes through that particular modality. Um, and so Sarah is one of those people that I just adore. And so we were inspired by the, um, I don't know if you guys uh, listened to this, but it was an event called Co-Creating at Its Best, where Wayne Dyer interviewed Esther and Abraham um, in a setting where, you know, lots of questions. And um, it just was, it was a really fun event. And Sarah and I have both been very inspired by that. And we decided to uh, take that inspiration and create our own live event. So I will be asking the questions. Sarah will be sitting in the chair, channeling for the council. And we will be asking the big questions, you know, those deep questions of our heart and our soul. Um, and the cool thing is that we're going to do a live Q&A portion at the very end of the event. Um, so you can bring your own questions. So the event, I know we're in Seattle, but Sarah is in Santa Barbara. So we're kind of meeting in the middle. And this event is going to be in San Francisco um, in the Bay Area. Um, we're still, we're, we're talking to a couple of venues. I'll be able to announce that venue by October 1st. But I wanted to let you know so you could save the date. So that's Saturday, November 3rd. Um, from 12 to 4 p.m. Um, to go ahead and register, I think we've got early bird pricing. Um, Sarah has this event list, listed on her website, um, and I'll get it up on mine here pretty quick. But sarahlandon.com, and Sarah's name is S-A-R-A. So sarahlandon.com. And just go to the uh, tab that says attend, and there you will see the little drop down with the events and um, you can find out more information as we roll it out and go ahead and register if you want to grab that early bird pricing. But we hope to see you guys there. We're really excited. And this may be um, a one-time event, or if it goes well, we may keep doing it. So visit us for the Wisdom Workshop in the Bay Area, Saturday, November 3rd, from 12 to 4 p.m. Okay, so on to our awesome guest for today. So um, I was just telling her, her name is Alexia Vernon, um, that before we got on air, she she published her book with New World Library, and New World Library just does such a fabulous job of um, sharing their author's work and promoting the work and really helping folks like me get prepared for interviews. So I have all this awesome information. Um, so just to let you guys know, um, Alexia is the author of Step Into Your Moxie, which is the book we'll be discussing today. Uh, Alexia was branded a moxie maven by President Obama's White House Office of Public Engagement. She is a sought-after speaking and leadership coach who delivers transformational keynotes and corporate trainings for Fortune 500 companies and other professional groups and organizations, including the United Nations and TEDx. Uh, Alexia holds a graduate and undergraduate degree, uh, both graduate and undergraduate degrees, uh, in women's studies and has been featured on CNN, NBC, ABC, and CBS, all the biggies, and in publications like Forbes Woman, Women's Health, and the European Business Review. Her website is alexiavernon.com, and that's A-L-E-X-I-A, Alexia. Vernon is V-E-R-N-O-N. Um, so, Alexia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I have to ask, because this jumped out at me immediately, how did you become known as the Moxie Maven by President Obama's uh, Office of Public Engagement? Yes, it was an unexpe unexpected and very pleasant surprise. A number of years back, 
there was coverage of me for some of the events that I was leading that wound up on the White House blog. And the author who had covered that story, who worked for the Office of Public Engagement, uh, used the title Moxie Maven mm -hmm. in reference to me. And it was one of those things where like, sometimes we can't brand ourselves as well as somebody else can. <laughs> and it's stuck ever since. Oh, well, it's perfect. And of course, the name of the book is Step Into Your Moxie. And so I, you know, that's a word that I love. And I'm just curious, you know, what does it mean to you and how did you settle on that for the title yes. of the book? I adore the word as well. And I, I, so if you look up the word moxie in the dictionary or online, because who has a physical dictionary anymore, right. you would see, you would see words like verb or nerve. Um, and when I think about how to cultivate people's voices, particularly women's voices, while the word confidence is certainly a go-to word in the space, I wanted something that was a little bit more playful and sassy because that's just my personality. Yeah. I like to say that I dance in that playful space between the earnest and the ironic, which is sometimes a hard place to be in, in the self-development world, but it's, it's the zone I want to be in. Yeah. And that word just really spoke to me. I'm also a huge fan of kind of anything 1950s, 1960s, uh, mid-century. And I love that idea that there was this soda, for those who don't know, called Moxie Soda. It's still around in some communities. You can actually buy this stuff. The idea that it was patented as a drink that you would you would drink and would give you this rugged individualism and confidence. I mean, it's ridiculous, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, there was just something fun about it. So the word has stuck. And for me, when I talk about stepping into your moxie, it means the ability to walk into any room or onto any stage and unapologetically speak up for yourself, the ideas and issues that matter to you, and know that your words will invite whomever is listening to take action. Uh, yeah, and I have to ask this since you said you love anything mid-century, and of course you're all about women stepping into their power and being able to speak up. Have you been watching the marvelous Miss Mrs. Maisel? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I I realized when I said I love everything mid-century, stylistically, like cultural belief-wise, <laughs> right. like clearly I'm critical. <laughs> to be super clear, I think that that was one of the most outstanding shows that has been created. I watched it the week it came out, which was really special because. When you binge watch something and you haven't heard all the stuff around it, you know, you're just a blank slate. But, yeah. oh, my gosh, uh, Rachel Brashanon, I can't, I'm not sure how you say her last name, but she is just, uh, her performance is riveting. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And for those of you out there, of course, you, everybody's probably heard by now because it just took the show at the Emmys uh, or <laughs> got all the awards. Um, but it is, it's on Amazon Prime. And we actually got a membership to Amazon Prime just to be able to watch this show. And it does not disappoint. It is just, it is spitfire and funny. And the it's beautifully aesthetically. They, I just, they have <laughs> just done a great job. Anyway, I don't want to take away from your time by <laughs> plugging oh, the show. <laughs> Anyway, I had to ask. Okay, so it is interesting, though, Alexia, because um, this, the release of your book just seems, it couldn't be more serendipitously mm -hmm. timed, and especially even the interview this week, given what we've, what's been going on in current events. Um, so I just am curious, was that intentional, or did you have any idea how timely it would be? Oh, no, we had no idea. In fact, before the book made it to New World, some of the feedback that my agent received was because it, we were pitching the book April, May, 2017. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know if people are still going to be so up in arms about women and Trump. I feel like that wave will be over. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's so interesting to me that we would see women using their voices and speaking up about their rights and on behalf of others as a wave. But, you know, fast forward, obviously, while writing the book, the Me Too movement started to scale mm-hmm. um, the hashtag and the organization Time's Up. And this week with um, Dr. Blasey Ford testifying and many things clearly in between. Mm-hmm. The reason to me why this book is so relevant right now is not because it's just about calling attention to the need for women to speak up and to be listened to and to be believed, but because it's one thing to show up to a march or a protest or to broadcast your views in an angry or even an inspiring social media post, but it's, as we've witnessed, an altogether very different thing to believe that you have the power and the ability to speak up and be heard, particularly when you're doing it in arenas where those who have power are complicit in maintaining the status quo. And the book is all about providing a very actionable way to be able to navigate through that difficult sensation that comes up when speaking your truth in small ways and in big ways and all those ways in between. And also my hope, and and I think it does do this, is giving folks a way to actually have moments of levity in the process and not feel like it has to be so hard because when we think things are hard, we usually don't do them. Right. And I just want to point out again, you know, I said this in the bio, but Alexia is a a speaking and leadership coach. Um, And so this book, as she said, and I really connected with the book, Alexia, um, because I felt like it's very relevant in my life and my work. But it is very actionable in terms of how not just this is not just about being on a TEDx stage, but this is about having daring conversations in a workplace, how to to share your story in a way, um, whether that's in a personal or professional setting that has an impact um, and where people where it will really land with people. And, you know, I hope you don't mind that I'm going here this quickly in our interview. But one of the things that I really loved was that you shared really vulnerably um, uh, that you were you were a victim of abuse as a young child, and that was part of you stepping into your voice because some children never come forward, and you did. And how did that impact you know the trajectory from then until now? It played a profound role. It still does every single day of my life. And what I mean by that is, for a long time, I wondered truthfully, why did I speak up at four? Why did I tell my parents? Because I was a shy, introverted kid, a people pleaser. And it wasn't until the time of my daughter's birth where my mom and I were going through old memorabilia. And we stumbled upon this article that she had clearly ripped from a parenting magazine that was dated 1982. <laughs> and it was all about how do you talk to your children about what constitutes safe touch and what is inappropriate touch. And more importantly, how to teach children how to speak up if anything were ever to happen to them. And there were notes on this article that indicated my mom had had that kind of conversation with me and I understood what to say. So I don't know if she intuited that something might be happening with another family member or she just was really ahead of her time in terms of wanting to prepare her daughter um, for the realities that might confront her. 
But that's why I spoke up. And to know that role-playing conversations wound up becoming, not consciously, the way that I've trained speakers for over a decade without recognizing um, my own initial experience with role play, like that was a huge epiphany for me. But what I can say is when I did speak up, I wish I could tell you that that laid the foundation for a lifetime of speaking up and out, but that was so totally not the case. Mm. Because as we witnessed yesterday, it's one thing to speak your truth and even to be a credible speaker, but it's another for everybody who's listening to honor that truth. And so while there were people in my family, my mom, a perfect example, who listened, who believed, who took action, there were a lot of people in my family who weren't ready for that difficult information. And I have to tell you, it was slightly jarring to hear and to witness yesterday because it was the same stuff I experienced at four years old. Mm. There was one camp that was saying, we do believe that something horrible happened to you, but I think you've just remembered this wrong. It was clearly someone else. This person could have never committed those kinds of acts. And on the flip side, there was the more vulgar stuff around. Um, you've made this up. You're being manipulative. You want attention. Think about what the impact is going to have on this person's life and on the rest of this person's family, which of course was also my family. Right. Um, so, you know, I've seen that having done this work for years, not specifically around those who speak up about abuse and assault and harassment, but inevitably when you work with a lot of women on voice and communication, whether that's public speaking or negotiation or simply giving and receiving feedback in the workplace, these issues come up, how common that narrative is, whether it's happening in the family, whether it's happening in someone's workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I've just been amazed. Um, so many of my friends who have now come forward, you know, hashtag why I didn't report. And, and it just, it's breaking my heart because when you look at actually the numbers, and I know I'm, I'm spreading now, I'm talking between childhood all the way up to adulthood, but when you look at numbers of, of kids or statistics on reporting of, of sexual abuse and what is it, uh, one in three or one in four children is sexually abused, and I think that's just what's reported. So what's actually yes. happening, I can't imagine that it, it's got to be double that at least. Um, you know, that's my off the cuff guess. And of course, I'm not basing that on anything but my own opinions. But um, yeah, it's just um, it, being able your work, Alexia, I guess my point is that having that uh, what you said, the practice of being able to say the hard things and knowing how to say them is so vital to our healing, um, not just women, but men as well for whatever traumas they have endured. Um, so you mentioned that. Uh, that it wasn't just, you know, you, you, you spoke up at age four and then suddenly you were in your moxie and you were able to <laughs> speak yeah. boldly from then on. Like you, you share some pretty, um, I would have to say, traumatizing stories from high school or tween years and middle school. Um, so it looks like it took you, it didn't happen overnight for you to step into your moxie. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that journey and how that actually ended up happening for you. Sure. As I say very early on in the book, most of my life, I did experience an on-again, off-again relationship with my own voice. And what that meant was that there would be moments where I was hustling hard for other people's approval, striving to be liked, to not be found out for 
failing to be enough of whatever I conjectured other people wanted me to be. I was a good student. Um, so I used grades as one way to try to validate myself. But the thing that's complicated is that that wasn't the whole story. And for a lot of us, we we channeled two different parts at a minimum of our personality. So I had this other part that had a tremendous desire actually to be seen and to be visible, to be known, to be significant, to make impact, because I felt like I've grown up with a ton of privilege. I've got some good ideas. I want to leave the better, leave the world a better place than I found it. And I had a really hard time being able to integrate both of those tendencies. Now, I got to say that going to an amazing school, so we were talking before that my school is actually just above Factoria. I graduated from Forest Ridge School of the Sacred Heart. Those middle school and high school years were tremendous in terms of helping to reconnect me to my own voice. A lot of the, actually all of the incidents I described were what happened when I wasn't at Forest Ridge, <laughs> summer at space camp. Right. Uh, and then, you know, really finding my voice at a retreat at my school where it was the first time I ever spoke my story aloud outside of to my parents and in therapy. But my takeaway from that first time I spoke up about the abuse was that when I spoke, people listened, but I wasn't necessarily sure I wanted that responsibility because I saw the chain reaction of events that were triggered from that initial act of truth telling. And even as I moved into my career, and I think a lot of women can experience this, if we are lucky enough to grow up in an environment where we are told by our family and our education system that our ideas matter, that we should speak up, like that's wonderful and I had that. But then you wind up in the world and those social pressures in the workplace, in college, in government and communities start to take effect and it becomes a little bit trickier to be able to consistently make moxie a default state when there's so much suggesting maybe our voices don't matter as much as we might have been told that they do. Yeah. And so for would you say, you know, in sharing the stories, you knew when you got to a certain age that you were ready to share that very personal story. How would you advise or do you advise your clients, your students about when it's how do they know they're ready to share their story? How do they know that it's okay to do that? Brene Brown has said so many wise things, one of which is that not everyone has earned the right to hear our story. I might be paraphrasing somewhat, but that's the essence of what she has said. Mm -hmm. And I agree. There are different stages of speaking our stories. The first is giving ourselves permission to tell the truth to ourselves. Then it's looking at who has our back and who is a safe person who's not going to try to do anything with our story, but hold space for us to tell it aloud. Mm-hmm. From there, and I'm not a therapist, I'm very clear about that, depending on the hold that that story currently has on you, there might be a lot of healing that has to happen in a therapeutic context. But I don't actually believe that it is empowering to tell our stories in front of a live audience until we have really done the deep forgiveness work and we are no longer holding that energetic connection to the person or to the people who might have committed acts against us Mm -hmm. or to the people who might have been complicit in not doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so 
there's lots of different ways to speak our truth in the world. You know, it's, I think it's naive to suggest that we have this one story that defined us and that's the story we have to tell. I've seen for a lot of folks, whether they're thinking about doing more speaking on stage on behalf of their businesses, let's say they are coaches um, and consultants who want to use speaking to grow their platform or they are professional women who maybe want to present at conferences. And I, I work with men, so you know men can fit into all those categories as well. Right. That that story may simply give us license to, let's say, be a little disruptive in terms of how we talk about our industry or the topic of our choosing, to ask questions and to not parrot back what our industry says is the norm. That might be prompted by us telling the truth about difficult things in our lives, but it doesn't mean that the things we have to talk about, our platform doesn't actually have to be the difficult things in our lives. Got it. Um, yeah, and the other thing I wanted to just point out, because I know we're getting close to taking a break, um, th that really stood out to me was when you were talking about your evolution into stepping into your moxie, and of course the book that we're talking about today is Step Into Your Moxie. But um, the, the tendency in the past, perhaps, to hide behind experts and research, not articulating your own viewpoints. And I have to say, Alexia, that one hit me right in the gut because mm. um, <laughs> when I was going through my master coach training, um, one of my um, colleagues, or I guess my fellow trainer, I think it wasn't an instructor, it was one of the women that was in the program with me, in evaluating one of my presentation, she said it feels more like a performance than a chat. And, and feedback that mm. I continued to get was that I was using, it sounded like because I was an attorney in my past life, that I was presenting a case with evidence and footnotes and things like that. And I thought, I totally relate to that, Alexia, that I didn't feel confident enough to put my own spin and viewpoint on things. And can you just speak to that a little bit before we go to our break? Sure. Thank you for your vulnerability there, because it's not easy to admit that we are hiding. And there's so many different ways that we can hide. You mentioned a key one in terms of other people's ideas, the research, the stats. And I did that as a speaker for probably the first five years that I was speaking. It was mm. like a laundry list. This expert says this and this study says this. And to be sure, I'm not suggesting that we just go out there and we pretend like our ideas are <laughs> in isolation and we right. <laughs> make up things. Rather, how can we use statistics, research, other people's ideas as a launching off point so that we are developing our thought leadership by being in relation to those other things rather than making those other things our ideas? So I see this a lot when coaching women that oftentimes their presentations really feel more like a middle school book report <laughs> where you just sort of say, this is exactly what the author said. Only in this case, it's, this is what other people said. And you leave wondering, did you agree? Did you disagree? Where do we go from here? And one of the things, that, so for a while, I was a co-event organizer and producer of TEDx events. And one of the things in the TED community that gets spoken is this idea of every talk should have an idea worth spreading. Mm. And that's a really great rule for all communication when you're trying to move somebody to action. How can it not be you informing someone, but rather you being super duper clear on how are you seeking to call that person to action because that requires of you a persuasive case. And persuasion, education is a piece of that, 
But more importantly, it's our secret sauce. It's how we use our words, our experiences, our stories, the questions we ask to prompt discovery for the person who's listening. And that discovery is what's going to move them to take action. Beautiful. Yeah. And so that that ability to bring your own opinion and to put your special sauce with it, that is one of Alexia's specialties. Um, of course, I'm talking with Alexia Vernon today, um, who has written the book, Step Into Your Moxie. Um, and we're going to take our break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation so you too can learn how to step into your moxie. You're listening to Sunny in Seattle. Be back in just a few. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Are you ready to get unstuck from a bad marriage and embrace your best life? If you're anything like me, you may have spent years creating a life that looks pretty good on paper. There's just one problem. Your marriage is unhappy and unfulfilling, but you're too scared to trade your comfortable life for a future full of unknowns. In my new book, Unhitched, I will give you the tools you need to make the right decisions about your marriage, as well as the confidence that your future can be better and brighter than you can even imagine. I share my own very personal story and I will guide you through a clear process that will enable you to answer the question, should I stay or should I go? It's a process that will help you tune out fears and unwanted advice, and instead tune into your own intuition and inner wisdom, as well as exit a marriage gracefully and feel secure about your future. Get ready to trade confusion and stagnation for your best life. Unhitched, unlock your courage and clarity and unstick your bad marriage. Available for pre-order today on Amazon.com. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it, or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell. Everything's changed. It is tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Notice anything different? You should. There's no other station like Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy. I am joined today by author, uh, speaking coach, leadership coach, Alexia Vernon, who has a fabulous new book out through New World Library, which is called Step Into Your Moxie. Um, and I actually wanted to, to dive back in, Alexia, where we were talking about during the break. Um, and you made a really good point that I think um, it, it actually resonated for me. Because when I'm here in the studio, this is one of my happiest places in my life, and I feel so much joy that it um, it really, I feel like it, it just uh, bolsters my energy and my confidence. Um, but then there are other places in my life where I still find myself, as I um, heard it called once, living in apology energy. You actually have a much cuter or more, um, <laughs> what's the word? It's like a you know, catchy term for it. Bunny-itis. So can you tell us a little bit about <laughs> what bunny-itis is and how we know if we have it? I certainly can. <laughs> 
when we think about how we show up and how we speak up or, or don't, as women, we have less models typically available to us of what high performance can look like. And as a result, there are usually two ways we default. And to be sure, it's not always one or the other. Oftentimes we can flip flop between them. One way is acting a bit like a bunny. And if you think about what bunnies look like and represent, they are soft, they are cuddly. You think about Playboy, they can be very sexy. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that it's so in the feminine that it's lacking power. It's not authentic. It always feels like it's a performance and an apology. I'm so sorry that I am taking up too much space. Literally saying, I'm so sorry because, you know, I tapped your toe when I sat down at my table. And obviously when we are in that bunny energy, whether we are literally apologizing or we're doing it by acting as if we want to disappear and not be seen, that's not us stepping into our moxie. On the flip side, though, we can ping pong in the other direction where we're a bit of a dragon. And a dragon, like the name suggests, is incredibly fiery. It's my way or it's the highway. When we're in that dragon energy, we are now hyper masculine and also inauthentic because oftentimes we feel like we're lone rangers. I had to push through all of these obstacles. So I'll be darned if I'm going to help anyone else because it's all about me and my success and I've earned it. Right. And yeah, I refer to when we're in the bunny stuff as uh, bunny-itis, when we're in the dragon stuff, dragonosis. <laughs> uh, the, the ultimate goal is to embody a cheetah energy. And I love what a cheetah represents because they are incredibly graceful, strategic animals. They can accelerate faster than any other land mammal, but at the same time, they're also really flexible. They'll hold back. They'll let other animals feed before they come in and they eat what they need. And they also have these very arresting eyes where you know, they have tear marks even permanently imprinted. So beyond just what does a cheetah look like, of course, what really matters is how do you use that as an archetype that amplifies your moxie? And there are a few key ways. One being recognizing that moxie doesn't mean you have to speak first. It's okay to step back and observe and be deliberate about when you choose to take action so that you can have the maximum possible impact. To me, also, second, it's about having presence. I would go so far as to say unshakable presence, meaning that whatever happens, even if it feels uncomfortable, especially if it feels uncomfortable, there's that deep knowing that you can handle it. And perhaps third, having a healthy relationship to emotions, which is very different than saying, I feel something and I act from something, being informed by our emotions. So if something touches us, that's cool. If something moves us to tears, that's fine. And if something makes us angry, that's also okay. But how do we ask, how is this emotion allowing me to be able to move people to action with my message rather than letting the emotion become about our own experience and then disconnecting us from our moxie? Right. And you bring up emotions. And that uh, leads me, I, I was very um, happy to see in your book that you referenced Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor several times. Mm. I love her work on, um, well, of course, her story, My Stroke of Insight, the best-selling memoir. But 
um, how she talks about emotions. And I think it's worth mentioning here because I have a lot of clients that are afraid of feeling those emotions, afraid of opening Pandora's box and not knowing exactly how to do with, not know what to do with them. And of course, in your work, I would think fear would be a big one that comes up for folks since what is it? Public speaking apparently causes the more fear than the thought of death. <laughs> so, and <laughs> even internationally in countries that experience terrorism higher than terrorism, which I find astounding. What? That's bananas. Okay. <laughs> and cherries and apricots and <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So how how do you? Um, you know, bringing in Dr. Taylor's work or, uh, you know, how do you coach folks around emotion and fear and all that good stuff? I can't remember if I first read her book or watched her TED Talk. They probably both happened somewhat simultaneously. But when she introduces the idea that from the moment we have a thought, it's going to trigger a physiological response for 90 seconds and we get to choose what happens after. Like when I heard that, it was revelatory. Right. Because while those 90 seconds might feel wildly uncomfortable, and to be clear, like physiological sensation isn't just that we feel happy or sad or scared. It's what our body actually does. So blood flow being constricted, that feeling like a colony of butterflies is in your tummy, our throat tightening, that's that 90 second response from the thought. Mm -hmm. But then at the end of those 90 seconds, depending on what new thought we choose, we actually are in control of what that next physiological response is going to be. Now, I'm the first person to admit that I have totally looped for days <laughs> with <laughs> negative thoughts and had one subsequent 90-second uh, cycle of wretched physiological sensation after another. I'm sure we've all had those moments. And yet knowing that while I can't choose how I feel, I can drill thoughts that are going to shift how I feel. Like that's really empowering, which I want to be super clear. It's not the same thing as saying you're not entitled to grief or to sadness. We are. It's when it feels like it is no longer serving us, how do we ensure that our thinking is going to produce a different experience for us? So that's one piece of the work. Another is really changing our narrative around the sensation that we're experiencing. So when we are on the cusp of doing something big, saying something big, it is totally normal to feel that colony of butterflies inside. It means we're in the game and we're stepping into our moxie. We're about to make impact. The worst thing that we can do is label that fear and try to shove that feeling down because that keeps us playing small. That keeps us out of doing our big work in the world. And a quick strategy to be able to flip the mental script on that is the moment we start to feel those sensations, really saying, yes, thank you, awesome. <laughs> Conditioning our thoughts and as a result, our feelings to create this story and create this experience that this is a good thing. Because what is desired from anybody who we're trying to move to action, be it on stage, in a meeting with our significant other, is ultimately about authentic visibility, being seen. And when we are truly allowing other people to see us and we are present to whatever's going on inside as we are being seen, we actually don't have to worry about finding the right words anymore. 
because in that moment of being seen, ideally of genuine eye contact with the person or people who are listening, we could almost say anything because there's honesty there. Mm. We'll figure out the words because it it won't matter. It's the energy that matters almost more, if that makes sense. It does. And that was one of the things that I thought was so interesting because I've never taken a formal speaking class or taken any kind of training. Um, I do intend to do that uh, at some point. But one of the things that stood out to me, and I think this is especially impactful because you were one of the TEDx organizers, um, Mm -hmm. that you don't recommend that people memorize what they're going to say, either in a presentation or something of that nature. Yeah, I I recommend that anytime you are preparing communication for an important situation, that you begin with the end in mind. You ask first and foremost, how do I want to call this person or these people to action? How do I want them to think, behave, operate differently as a result of what I've said? And then you reverse backwards. Each thing you're going to say or ask before that to ensure that everything that's coming out of you is actually moving that person or those people to action. And so with respect to public speaking, I definitely don't recommend that anybody wings it, but it comes right back to that principle we talked about earlier of role playing what what you're intending to do. And particularly for public speaking, that means standing up and actually walking and talking, knowing the key points Because what's actually going to happen is you create muscle memory between the words that are coming out of your mouth and between the actions that you're using, the gestures. And you will, quote, memorize. It will be ingrained. But it's a different kind of memorization that doesn't put you back into grade school where you're trying to remember the exact words. It lets you be truly present, knowing at any moment, I know how to transition to this next idea and the next one and the next one because I've reversed everything. So, for example, one of my favorite speech structures is problem cause solution. I know that story, let's say, that I'm going to open with. Uh I know the question I'm going to use to transition out of that story and turn what I'm saying back over to my audience. Then I know I've got to present my problem and I've practiced saying it out loud. I know what that is. I know that I'm then going to transition into explaining the cause of that problem. Then I'm going to transition into the solution. Then I'm going to transition into calling my my audience to action. So along the way, I forget a quote or uh, I say, um, a couple of times, eh, so what? Because I'm, I'm, I'm still with my audience and I'm moving them to that final destination. I love that. And, and it also brings to mind a particularly impactful story from the book that I loved. Um, it's, it's in the section around the holy yes. Um, and mm-hmm. I just, if you could share a little bit, because you were talking about you actually were able to negotiate two pay raises within this nonprofit organization, which apparently was unheard of. Someone in payroll saw this and you worked with her. And I just, do you mind sharing that story? Because I think it's so inspiring for the people out listening, maybe particularly the women who don't know how to ask for this, who don't know how to go for the holy yes. Absolutely. It's a little bit of context. And then I promise I will jump into that story because there might be listening saying holy yes what what you're talking about right right so when we think about sales in general it often follows a more masculine model that perhaps is most epitomized from um 
the expression always be closing ABC. Yeah. <laughs> That's in Glenn, Harry, Glenn Ross that I allude to. Although, you know, Alec Baldwin's performance is classic. But this idea of like sell harder, sell faster, be manipulative, go, go, go. Which means that for a lot of us, whether we are in sales for our businesses or we're simply trying to present our ideas and have them make impact, because that's that's selling too. We don't do it because we're terrified of being seen in that like swarmy way that's going to make people want to take a shower after they spend 30 seconds with us. Right. So I reframe this idea of, of all of us, men and women, needing a feminine reframe which I call going for the holy yes. This idea that sales, when it's done from a place of integrity, can actually be a holy experience. And that that kind of experience respects other people's right to say no to us, to disagree. It's about having compassion for difference. It's about extending an invitation and still being very strategic, using emotion and using story to forge a genuine connection. So with all of that said, one of the places where we want to go for the holy yes is in negotiation, whether we're negotiating salary, whether we're upping our rates with our clients, whether we're having a daring conversation with our significant other and we are negotiating to do less domestic responsibility. All of those things, in my opinion, constitute negotiation. So For whatever reason, negotiation was one of those contexts I actually felt a little brazen in first, probably because I had a dad who was in sales. I shouted him a lot after my parents got divorced. He has four children. Every single one of us, as he is very proud to say, has put the key in the door and started our own businesses. And I was earning more, or excuse me, I owed more in student loan money than I was making in the course of the year. By the time I was done with graduate school, I lived in an apartment in New York City on the Lower East Side, fifth floor walk up, like all the stereotypes, like totally true. Um, We had rats, like it was awful. (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, my role had morphed, my supervisor had left. I was now doing two jobs. Like I need more money. Like I deserve more money. If my dad knew what I was actually making, he would be so disappointed that he had sent me to all the schools that he had. And this is where I was. And so I, I wound up approaching, um, the person who is now managing me, um, over the next, the course of the next few weeks, I finally had the conversation with the chief decision maker I had to have, and I, I got more money. And then I did that shortly thereafter. And there was a woman who was in our payroll office who obviously was processing, um, payroll and saw like, who is this young thing who's like getting more money, um, than anyone else. And I got to say that my organization is probably 90% female. So that probably also tells you why other people weren't negotiating because there was just a female culture where that wasn't the thing to do and it was nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And she came to me and she said, can you help me role play? Well, I don't think she used those words. Can you help me practice? Because I want to negotiate as well. And we did um, at night after people would go home, she would come into my office because I now had my own office. That was mm-hmm. part of my negotiation, keeping that. Nice. She went in, she did her thing and she didn't get more money. And She was actually okay with it because she felt really good about the fact she had tried. I was peeved (laughs) because it's important to note that she was an immigrant 
And she had a professional degree from her country of origin that wasn't being recognized here. And she was basically being paid minimum wage. And of course, my head went to that place of if she had been white, if she had perhaps been a little younger, would this have gone a different way? Mm -hmm. Fast forward, I can't remember how many months. And she came back to my office and she was totally lit up. And she told me that she had gone and she had applied for a job at another similar institute where they did recognize her degree, even though it was foreign. And now she was making more money than I was. And it was one of those moments of like, yes, yes. Sometimes it doesn't happen the first time. We can't be attached to the outcome that every time we step into our moxie, we're going to get what we want. But if we create the mindset, the skill set, the habits, and we keep doing it, if not now, it's, it's coming later. Absolutely. And that brings up another point that you make in the book that I think is so important. Um, But quickly, because I know we're getting toward the end of our hour, I want to make sure that people know that you're going to be here in Seattle. um, And that is on, oh, I just lost it, October 25th, Thursday. Can you tell us a little bit about um, if people want to come out and see you, Alexia, and learn more about your book and your work, what's going to be happening and where? I sure can. So I am partnering with a group called Gather Seattle, and you can go to their website, gatherseattle.com. I'm coming October 25th from 6 to 8 p.m. to do an interactive presentation to help folks really fall back in love with their voice, take some of the principles I talk about in the book and actually bring them out, these fun and effective strategies to really slay self-defeating self-talk as well as cultivate specific action steps to be able to amplify your communication in all aspects of your life and work. I would love to see folks there. Um, Like I said, it's a group called Gather Seattle, October 25th, 6 to 8 p.m. There'll be a book signing after. uh, And the book is included in the ticket price. So folks can go there. Or if you go to my website, which you mentioned at the top, sunny, alexiavernon.com, I have a book events page. You'll see it listed there as well. And, and I think this is especially touching to mention that you were going to actually be going back to your alma mater to work with the women or the girls there at the school. I am. I, I really did go to the most amazing school in the world, um, Forest Ridge. And they now have, I think this is just so awesome. I have a little bit of FOMO about it. <laughs> they created a girls institute within the school that is bringing experts from around the country to talk about girls leadership in the world there. And I actually get to be the inaugural speaker for their speaker series, which is pretty cool at the center for girls. So I'm going there to speak to middle school and high school students, lead a public speaking workshop for some of the middle schoolers and then actually doing an event for alumni. Oh, I just love that. What an honor and how inspiring and how lucky those girls are. Oh, that's got to be so much fun. <laughs> um, so go, returning to the point that I wanted to to touch on. So this particular woman who had come to you who was in payroll and then ended up um, asking for a raise didn't get it. But very soon thereafter, Um, using that moxie that you guys had cultivated together, was able to make a pitch to a new organization and was then making more than you, which is just, I mean, awesome outcome for that story. But it brings up to me the, the idea of resilience. And you talk about this in the book. How does resilience factor into moxie? Hugely. I believe that in hindsight, because when we are going through something difficult, we never can think this way. Yeah. 
that usually those moments that bring us to our knees, that force us to surrender, are actually the moments that are most cultivating our voice. Because when we inevitably have to develop the self-talk to stand back up again, dust our bums off, ask for help, forgive ourselves and other people, be creative in terms of finding other alternatives to get us to where it is we're seeking to go, all the resilient stuff, that empowers our moxie. It sets us up so in the more mundane moments, we're a little bit more moxalicious, if you will, uh-huh. because if you could do it in those really difficult moments, then it's just going to be a heck of a lot easier to be able to do it in the rest of, of our lives. Yeah. And, and also to me, this is related, but not quite the same thing. I know we've got just a few minutes left, but you bring up also boundaries as it relates to moxie. And that's something that I've really been working on in my own life. What about boundaries in moxie and what can you share with our listeners on boundaries? Yep. We hear that word a lot. We have to set clear parameters for what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do. And I agree completely. One of the areas we most have to work on, though, is rearticulating our boundaries when someone trespasses them. Mm-hmm. And as I say in the book, also being very cognizant, if you are a woman, not to have unrealistic expectations for other women that you would never ask of a male in her position. With boundaries comes the opportunity to have more time for self-care. And anybody who's in the self-improvement space has probably thought a lot about self-care. It can sometimes feel super woo. But to me, self-care is not about what you do. It's about giving yourself times to shut off the noise and hear your authentic voice again. Because if we don't have those moments, how can we go speak our truth in the world on a daily basis? Because we're so crowded with noise, we can't take the time we need to form, to listen to what it is that we're craving to speak aloud, let alone give ourselves the, the white space we need to cultivate our messages. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will just, I'll cop to this because I, you know, every time someone says, oh, let's have coffee or let's do this, or can you meet for this? And I think I've, I end up feeling um, completely exhausted without time for my own, uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the things that I want to create and do. So I love that you um, really promote boundaries as a way to cultivate moxie or as a part of it. Um, So I have been joined today by Alexia Vernon, uh, speaking coach, leadership coach, author of the fabulous new book, Step Into Your Moxie from New World Library. Of course, her website is alexiavernon.com. Don't forget that she will be right here in Seattle on Thursday, October 25th. Um, So if you go to gatherseattle.com, you can find out more about that event. Um, So, Alexia, we have about 30 seconds left. Uh, Any final message you want to leave with our listeners as we send them off into the weekend? Last thing is that Moxie is a habit, and every day you get to choose to buff up the muscles to make it your default when you choose to cultivate the mindset and the skill set to do so. Thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, thank you, Alexia. And I have Benny's making little muscles in the background as you said that. (laughs) They are little. She got that right. (laughs) Oh, whatever. (laughs) Very robust moxie muscles. There we go. Thank you. Stop my back. Okay, so go practice your moxie, everyone. You've been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, signing off. See you next week. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.